Colossians 2. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of any holy day, or of the new moon, or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ." Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered, and knit together, increaseth and with it increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wise counsel given uh, through your inspiration by the Apostle Paul, through the Apostle Paul, uh, that you've conveyed down to us. And just pray that through your Holy Spirit we can learn from it today, that we might uh, live our lives in a way that would please you, being 
faithful and solid in our faith for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Colossians. Again, Paul is writing from prison to a church that he has not met personally, but uh, that has heard the gospel. And uh, Paul is writing to um, encourage them, and he's also to fend off some bad doctrine that's coming in. It's nothing new. I mean, you think about all the crazy doctrines now and cults and this and that. Uh, That's nothing new since the beginning of the church. Satan has tried to get bad doctrine in the church, wrong teachings, lead people astray. Paul warned of it. John warned of it. So Paul is dealing with uh, the church at Colossae, and it's amazing how contemporary. He could be talking to the church today. That it's so re- what he has to say is so relevant, even though he was writing to a church almost two millennia ago. So Paul says, For I would that ye knew how great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. Laodicea is a nearby church there in this same valley, not too far away. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So he's saying, You don't know me personally. You actually heard secondhand. Okay, you know, the apostles and the first, they actually had seen Jesus Christ personally. But then the next generation heard directly from the apostles. Well, this is a third generation. They've heard from someone who heard an apostle. Okay, so it's a little more distance, just as valid, but it's a little bit harder for their faith because they haven't seen Jesus. They haven't actually even met Paul. So Paul says, I want you to know how much I'm concerned about your church, even though you haven't seen me personally. I care about you like I was there in person. Okay? As you know now, in this pan- age of a pandemic, uh, we have to do so many things remotely. We're trying to deal with school and work and various things over conference. And we've got some great technology where you can have video conference and telephone conferences and emails and this and that. But it's not the same as being face-to-face, where you can look them in the eye. You know, especially someone like a, a pastor, an apostle like Paul, and he tells the people, he wants to be able to look them in the eye. It's like, are you understanding what I'm saying? Are you encouraged? Are you discouraged? What are you dealing with? I'd like to be able to see you personally to uh, have a greater influence. But he says, uh, even though you haven't seen me personally in the flesh, it's just like I was there with you. That their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. He wants to bring them comfort, but he wants them to grow together as a church, so they can support one another. He's not there to guide them all the time. They need the mutual support of the fellow believers. And all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. So he says, I want you to be comforted by me, by one another, and I want you to come to full knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he says it's a mystery Okay, mystery doesn't mean it's an Agatha Christie story. Mystery means this is something that was not previously revealed in Old Testament times, but has now been revealed in Jesus Christ. Okay, the mystery is that salvation isn't through keeping the law. It isn't through the sacrificial system. It's through Jesus Christ. That's the great mystery that God had been slowly revealing throughout the ages and was fully revealed in Jesus Christ at his resurrection. He said, "I, I want you to know that and I want you to growing the Father and in Christ. So his hope is that even though he's not there with them personally, they haven't met Jesus Christ personally, but they can grow to understand God's will for them fully 
through Jesus Christ, in whom, Jesus Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's like, you think, but they're so far removed, how can they know? They didn't personally hear all Jesus' teaching. They weren't personally there. They don't even have the full New Testament. They have letter from Paul. They have what they've been told. They don't have that. Or us, you know, we're 2,000 years removed. How can we be as close to Jesus Christ as Paul was? Paul says you can because in Jesus Christ himself, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are there. What you need to know is in Jesus Christ. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. So it's like, there's always a competition of ideas, right? And we certainly see that we're in a big political season and you've got some very different ideas about what we should do in this country. And it's that way all the way around the world. You've got that. There's a competition for ideas. There's that, it's that way in the church always. that way in religion of all sorts. There's a competition. There's a lot of different choices in religion. There's a lot of different choices in churches. And there's a lot of different things. So how can we know what's right? And Paul says, I don't want you to be led away just because this sounds appealing. So he's going to try to uh, encourage them in the word of Jesus Christ. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in spirit. He says, I'm just as close to you as I could be. It's all one spirit because it's God's Holy Spirit. And even though I'm not physically with you, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ and I love you joying and beholding your order, so that I rejoice in that you have followed Jesus and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So they haven't departed. They haven't gone away. He hadn't had to rebuke them like he did Corinth and this and that. They're holding to the faith, but there's still always competing ideas coming in. There's always ways Satan is trying to deceive them and lead them astray. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Okay? There's two things. You first have to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's salvation. There is no Christian life until then. It says that the carnal mind can't even understand things that are because they're spiritually discerned. The first step is you have to come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what puts you into the body of Christ. But after that, that's not the end of it. We don't just say, well, I walked down the aisle, I got baptized, I'm good to go. Now you have to walk in Jesus Christ. Remember, He has created good deeds that we might walk in them. You need to let Christ... That's first, you have to know Christ. Then you have to let Him uh, guide you and direct you. Rooted and built up in Him. So you've got to grow in Him. You start off as a baby. You've got to be like a tree. You've got to dig your roots down deep. You've got to get down to where the nutrition is, where the water is. Dig in God's Word. Dig in Jesus Christ. Get to know Him better. And be established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So he's like, what you've been taught is right and good. Stick with it. Stay to it. Grow in it. Learn it. Practice it. Do it. And you'll become established. And be grateful for what you've heard. Beware... Now he's warning them, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So Paul is warning them that deceivers are going to come in. Okay, It sure happens. It's all over the place. Uh, 
He first mentions philosophy. Okay? You may or may not have taken a philosophy class in college, but I guarantee you it was godless. The world's philosophy first eliminates God and then tries to live it. Okay, you remember probably one of the, one of the most famous philosophers, Nietzsche? Uh, he's the one that said God is dead. Okay, well, he, he looked at his, his philosophy and his philosophy that there is no God. And he took it to his logical conclusion that life was just totally meaningless. There is no meaning in life. And he himself said that there was no escape from his own philosophy. He even, he even said that the only escape he could see was insanity. And he got his wish. He spent the last 11 years of his life completely insane. Okay? <clears throat> because if there is no God, life is meaningless. You have no way. It's, it's kind of sad because we, we have a remnant still of godly values. It's, it's like in the corporate world, I'll, I'll hear, uh, you know, we need to live by our values. We have a certain set of values. We have uh, integrity. We have these values. Well, where did those values come from? Okay. Well, they, well, they talk about things like honesty and this and that, but why is honesty a value? We know that there's, there's tribes, Otto Koning's tribes, that they value deceit. You know, they decided that was when the, they heard the, well, it was Don Richardson's, uh, where he was in New Guinea, uh, when they heard the Bible stories, they thought Judas was the hero of the story because he was the betrayer. He was the deceiver. They thought, oh, my, that guy was good. You know, he's the, he was their favorite character. You know, they had the wrong values. There was one philosopher I remember that said, well, you know, there's no you know, set of values, but you can be, you can be good without God. You know, and, and atheists will do it. They'll say, well, you know, uh, they'll put out Christmas. They'll, they'll put out a thing and say, just be good for goodness sake. You know, just be good. You can just, you can be good without God, all that kind of thing. And so someone was debating this philosopher, this atheistic philosopher. And he said, well, do you know? And he said, well, there's no moral absolutes. You know, what, whatever your culture says is good and right. That's good and right. He said, well, do you know that there's some cultures in the world that think it's right to eat people? What do you think of that? If there's no absolute standard, is that, is that standard just as good as your standard? He said, well, I prefer the Western culture standard. But he could say no absolute reason why it was any better. You know? <coughs> because without God, there's nothing. Well, that's, that's, a, that's philosophy. Without God, it's hopeless. It's totally hopeless. So he's telling you, don't let this worldly philosophy <coughs> deceive you. It's a... A worldly philosophy, a vain deceit. Okay, vain. It's useless deception. Um, in fact, everything. There's there's no reason you can be an atheist. You say, well, atheists can be good. Yeah, but why? What what's the reason? What does it have? If there's no God, if there's no ultimate judgment, it doesn't really matter. Um, after the rudiments of the world, we, we say, well, we just look at things from the world's point of view. There is no God. Well, from the world's point of view, life has no meaning. If we're just random particles that came from a star, we're going to eventually wind up back as a star. <coughs> what difference does it make whether we live a good and kind and whatever life? Okay. And instead of living after Christ. So he's going to cover basically four different things 
that are attacking the church then, those same four things are attacking the church today. Okay, so I'm about philosophy, and for the greatest part, that is usually psychology. Okay, psychology has entered the church so much. Okay, then legalism. Okay, then mysticism, and then asceticism. And all those things are present uh, as a threat to the church today, too. For in him, in him, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the, fu- fu- all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, the way Paul deals with this is very, very good. <coughs> Excuse me. Asceticism, that means uh, self-punishment. That means living a very austere life, maybe eating very, very little, just barely enough to get by, living in rough circumstances, trying to make things hard on yourself, not having any luxury or comfort, kind of the way a Buddhist monk would live or some of the Catholic monks, the Augustinian monks, lived the way Luther lived before he got saved. Uh, you know, the Buddhist monks, are, they go around with nothing but a begging bowl. That's the only possession they have. And that, that's, a, that's being an ascetic, asceticism. Okay? Asceticism means you, you're trying to live without all the comforts and this and that. And you think that gives you spiritual credit. Well, the way Paul does here... And sometimes, like when we have a study of cults, and you know, I've got books that are all about different cults, and it's kind of interesting to hear all the different things they think. Paul deals with it from a little bit different angle. He doesn't necessarily go head on. He never names what cult they're actually dealing with here, although some people think it was the Essenes. There were three, according to Josephus, there were three main groups in Israel at this time. There were the Pharisees. We know about them, right? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, all this. There were the Sadducees, the one that didn't believe in the afterlife. And there were the Essenes. The Essenes are the ones where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls down by the Salt Sea. And they lived in an all-male, almost all-male community. And they lived a very ascetic life. They lived with uh, minimal comforts and all that sort of thing. And so... <clears throat> Those are the three main calls. And so they say kind of what he's dealing with is probably along the lines of the Essenes. But he never really directly says it. And he doesn't directly say, here's what they teach, whatever. What he does is he contrasts it. He, he, he magnifies Christ and then therefore making you see how wrong these other things are. It's kind of like we talk about with money. You know, Victoria is a bank teller and she sees lots and lots of real U.S. currency. And so when, when you run across a fake bill, which she does on a regular basis, it just kind of pops out at you because it's just not like all the good stuff. So when we really know Jesus Christ, when something's not of Christ, we spot it as a phony right off. So he, he, right here, he pretty much blasts a lot of the heresies uh, of his day and ours. He said, In Jesus Christ dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead, Okay? That means he's 100% completely divine. Jesus Christ is God. He's not some lower creation that came after the fact. He's God. Okay? Just like you know, the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does John open his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ. He immediately associates Jesus Christ with God the Father the Creator. 
Okay, 100%. And Paul says, in Jesus Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, completely right there. So there's one heresy that Jesus Christ was not fully God. He's a lesser being. That's the Muslims would say Jesus Christ was a great prophet. Some would say, well, Jesus Christ just had the Christ spirit upon him for part of his life, from his baptism to his crucifixion or things like that. No, he said the Godhead dwelt in Jesus Christ fully. And then he says bodily. The other thing they'd say was, well, if Jesus Christ was fully God, then he couldn't have been human because God is spirit and God couldn't uh, actually enter into corrupt flesh. He said, nope. John he said, we touched him, we handled him, we saw him, we talked to him, this and that. That's what Paul is saying here. He's fully God and fully human. Matter of fact, ever since Jesus Christ came in the form of the baby there at Bethlehem, he, even after his resurrection, he maintained his bodily form. Jesus Christ today is still in bodily form. Every time we hear about him, so he is uh, in the scriptures, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's still in a human body. Okay, Now it's a glorified body that can miraculously do things, but he's still in the human body. So he is forever the God-man. He's forever fully God and fully man. Okay, So right there in this one sentence, Paul just kind of lays that all out. In Jesus Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you, so Jesus Christ is complete. He's fully Godhead. But guess what? We are complete in Him. So we have everything we need in Jesus Christ. Okay? Which the head of all principality and power. So Jesus Christ has completed us because what we're missing, Jesus Christ has provided. <clears throat> and He rules over all power and authority and everything. We just did Daniel. We know how Daniel, how the angels had to struggle with these powers and principalities over all this. Well, Jesus Christ is head over all that. His victory over all. He's won the victory completely there. In whom also ye are circumcised. So the Jewish reference to the physical circumcision, that's the point that you were considered to be part of the Jewish people, the covenant people, when you were physically circumcised the eighth day after birth. With the circumcision made without hands. He said, I'm not talking about physical circumcision. Remember, Paul says that all that are Jews are not really Jews. Okay, it's those who really trust God. That's the true people of God. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's saying we're part of the body of Jesus Christ because we are crucified with Christ. In Him, our sins are forgiven and that body is cut away just like the circumcision, the symbol of sins being cut away when we're part of the covenant. We're part of God's people through Jesus Christ. We're buried with Him in baptism. That's what the baptism, the symbolism is. Down under the water, we're buried with Jesus Christ. Remember, the wages of sin is death. So we're buried with Jesus Christ just like He was buried according to the Scriptures. Uh, Wherein also ye are risen with him, raised again to walk in newness of life. We're raised to walk in the life of Jesus Christ. Through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. There's the confirmation. Paul has said that Jesus Christ is God. 
Well, what proof does he offer? Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Anybody else you know of can claim that? Muhammad? Buddha? Joseph Smith? Sun Yang Moon? Hare Krishna? Nope. Not one. Jesus Christ has been confirmed to be God because He's raised from the dead. Okay. There's, the, there's the confirmation we have. And you, so how does that affect us? Being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Okay, We've got a problem, right? The wages of sin is death. All have come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all gone. So that's our problem is with sin. But Jesus Christ, by being crucified on that cross, has taken away our sins. And he hath quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. That's what we really need. Why do you think these philosophers become so despairing? Okay, Because there's no hope. They have a godless philosophy and they, they think they're going to get rid of their guilt by getting rid of God. Doesn't work. Okay, think about a lot of these people that were A, this and that, Ernest Hemingway and these different ones. Most of them wound up killing themselves. Killing themselves, going insane. They, they couldn't handle it. I mean, they were smart people, but it didn't work. Without God, there is no hope. Because the thing is, we are sinners and we know it. We truly, we may try to deny it. Oh, well, I'm not that bad. Oh, I'm better than so and so. But really, down deep in your heart, you know you're a sinner. You know perfectly well you've not met God's standards. And so, uh, the only answer is that God Himself. You deny God, there's no hope. But with God, He can quicken us, make us alive again with Him by forgiving all your trespasses. What we really need is not to get rid of God, to get rid of our guilt. We need to turn to God to get forgiveness of our guilt. That's the only way. Okay, It's kind of like a murderer. Okay, They commit a terrible crime, and so then they kill the victim. So he can't tell. So you think, okay, I'm off the hook now because now I've killed them, so now they can't. Witness, well, somebody saw me. Got to kill him too. On and on. But they're still guilty. It doesn't work, does it? You can't get away with it. That, that doesn't solve your problem of guilt. You're still guilty. Okay? The only way to get rid of guilt is to get forgiveness. And the only place to get complete forgiveness is from God. How can God give us complete forgiveness? Because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. Whatever it is you've done, even all the way up to murder, you can be forgiven for it. You may have consequences for it, but you can be forgiven. You may get the death penalty for it, but at least you can know that you're forgiven and you're going to be right with God after that execution is finished. You can get forgiveness through God. Okay, so man's philosophies doesn't cut it. All these philosophers wound up in despair. They didn't have any hope. Many of them killed themselves, went insane. Now, 
blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, okay, that's kind of like you're speeding along 75. Blue lights start flashing in your window. You're caught. Oh, great. Ruined your day. You feel terrible. He pulls you over. Policeman comes and thinking, well, maybe he'll feel good today and give me a warning. Nope. He writes you out a ticket. Hands you this ticket for $150 and says, see the judge on Tuesday. Have a nice day. It's like, yeah, right. Okay. The only thing that's going to get you out of that is forgiveness. That judge could forgive that. It's possible. He can do that. But somebody's got to pay the price. But it says that he has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances. Compared to that, that's nothing compared to what we've done against God, right? We've broken God's law so much, broken his Ten Commandments, and there's this whole sheet posted, wanted, you know, for all these crimes. But Jesus Christ blotted it out. He erased it. And it's like today we use uh, inks have. Uh, acid in them so that they will actually burn into the paper and stay because if they don't you can wipe it off okay that's why you got to be careful what kind of pen you use when you write checks because checks can be washed if you look frank abagnale the guy that uh you know posed as an airline pilot and as a doctor and did all these things and traveled all the world when he was just a young man uh wound up in a french prison and nearly died but uh he, he gives seminars now. He works for the FBI. And he gives seminars. So they say he talks about how checks can be washed. and You can wash them and reuse them and all this kind of stuff. So they put acid in the check so that it burns down into the, pa- in the ink. So it burns down into the paper. So that if you wash it, it's still there because it's down in the fiber of the paper. Okay? Uh, but Jesus' blood can wash out the writings. He can wash it clean. So the, the crimes we've committed are washed away. Because he took it away and he nailed it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, okay, remember we belonged to Satan because we have sinned at, from the time Adam and Eve sinned, Satan had them because now they've broken God's law. But Jesus Christ had to spoil Satan. What did he say? If you first have to bind the strong man before you can take his belongings. Well, Jesus bound Satan by his death on the cross because he paid the price for our sins. And then he, by delivering us away from Satan, he spoiled Satan and delivered us unto his kingdom. That he may show them openly triumphing over them. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or new moon or Sabbath days. The other thing that apparently they struggled with and we do today too is legalism. Doesn't that enter the church too? There's many movements now, Christian movements, things like uh, the Hebraic Roots movement, things like that where you're supposed to now, you're supposed to spend most of your time studying the Old Testament law, you're supposed to celebrate all the Jewish holy days, you're supposed to meet on the Saturday, on the Sabbath to get credit for that, you're supposed to do this. It's all these works that you're supposed to do to earn credit with God. Well, sorry, you're not going to get anywhere close. God's standard is 100% and we've already failed. We're never going to make it up. So, but that comes into the legalistic sense. That's another temptation. Every religion but true Christianity is legalistic. There's things you have to do. 
Okay, it's all that. You'll find it everywhere. You'll find it in certain kinds of things that call themselves Christian. Catholicism, you earn credits and merits and this and that and reduce your time in purgatory and do all this kind of stuff. And that's that. Islam, uh, you're supposed to weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. And also it's your works. You're trying to earn your way into God's presence. Don't fall for that. All these feasts and holy days, there's nothing wrong with them, but they're just a shadow of, of things to come. But the body is of Christ. The body, Christ's church. It's Christ that makes you part of his body. It's not that you faithfully meet on the Sabbath day. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which you have not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly Mind. There's also a temptation to mysticism, special knowledge. It's very popular today in this new apostolic movement. These men are, they say they're apostles and they claim that they get these visions from God and he tells them things that are equal with or even above scripture. Uh, uh, Jesus Calling is probably one of the most popular devotional books. And that was written. She says Jesus appeared to her and dictated to her. And she writes these things down. And she considers them above Scripture because they're fresher. They're newer. That's what they say. These new apostles in the church, there's a bunch of them. And they claim that uh, God has spoken to them. And they make certain prophecies and predictions. And they say, well, you know, being 55, 60% right, that's good enough. You know, you make mistakes and this and that. That's not God's standard for a prophet. God's standard is 100%. But they're claiming to get new revelations from God. Okay, uh, They just get these impressions and these ideas and these visions. You know, I remember Oral Roberts talking about a 600-foot Jesus that appeared to him and told him to build a hospital that didn't need to be there. And it went completely out of business. But he raised a lot of money for it. Okay, He had a vision, a new revelation. That's mysticism. Okay? Uh, that's the same thing they, they had in Paul's day. They're saying there's these new revelations. No, we have the revelation of God right here. That's what God has revealed, and that's what we need. And not holding the head. Remember, the secret to the church is not some experience that you've had. That's like when I talked to Mormon missionaries. One of them just kept wanting to tell me he knew that Mormonism was right, and the Book of Mormon was right, because one day he had a burning in his bosom. And he just knew that was right. Well, I'm sorry, but I can't validate your burning in the bosom. Neither can you. You don't know what caused that. It might have been what you had for lunch. Okay? You don't know. How do you know you had this experience? Was it real? Was it counterfeit? You don't know. But we do know that Jesus Christ is God because he raised from the dead. That's not the same as a burning in the bosom. That's a real, historically verifiable fact. Okay, And Jesus Christ is the head. We follow him. And then because he's the head, then all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increase with the increase of God. That's how we grow in God. Is, we've got to remember the church is Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the one that leads us. How does he lead us? By his word. So everything that we do, we need to check it against his word. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ, your sins are forgiven, with the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject 
to ordinances. So why are you worried about all these picky stands? It's so easy to get caught up that you're not a good Christian if you're not doing this. If you're not at visitation every Tuesday night, if you're not at prayer meeting every Wednesday night, if you're not meeting on the right day of the week, if you're not this and that, then you're not with God. It's like, hey, are you in the body? Is Jesus Christ your head? That's what determines whether you're part of the church. So why are you following these silly orders? Touch not, taste not, handle not. That's the asceticism. You know, are you... Are you are you more pleasing to God if you're a vegetarian or a vegan? Well, you know, if that's the kind of diet you need to eat, that's what's healthy for you. If you've got allergies to uh, this and that and whatever, fine. But it's not making you any closer to God. Jesus says, you know, whatever you eat just goes out in the draft. You know, that doesn't defile a man. It doesn't make any difference spiritually what you eat or don't eat. Okay. Now, health-wise, fine. You know, pick the things that are healthy for you, good for you. That's fine. But it doesn't touch your spirit. Doesn't have anything to do with that, but we've got people in this world that they think that's that's everything. You know, if you if you drink milk, you're offending Mother Nature or something, and on and on. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said recently was talking about when the hurricane hit the coast, of Louisiana. She's like, Mother Nature is angry. It's like, did you really say that? I mean, Mother Nature is angry. Makes me think of the old. What was it, parquet or some some buttercream that had Mother Nature and they'd make her mad? You know, it's like, is that what you're talking about? Is that you? Mother Nature's angry? You know, who? It's like that's the way people think these days. And so we think by living the right kind of lifestyle, if we deny ourselves certain things, you know, if we uh, this asceticism, if we follow this Green New Deal, believe me, we'll be living an ascetic lifestyle. We'll be so dirt poor, we'll be glad to get anything to eat. Because they'll get rid of transportation, they'll get rid of corporate, there'll be no power companies, there'll be no cars, there'll be no airplanes, they'll, be, they'll shut down the economy, shut down the business, and we're all going to be scratching in the dirt hoping to find something to eat. I mean, we'll be living an ascetic lifestyle, that's for sure, but you're not going to like it much. Which all are to perish with the using. is that it really doesn't matter. I mean, I'm all for taking care of the environment, and we need to be responsible and careful. We shouldn't be polluting, you know, polluting our own pool. We need to be taking care, be responsible, that sort of thing. We need to be kind to animals. We don't need to be cruel. But the thing is, it's all going away before long. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think AOC's 16 years or whatever she said is, is matters much. But uh, the thing is, what you eat or don't eat, you're not going to know the difference. Okay? You know, there's certain times we think, oh man, I really have something. That doesn't sound good. I really want to have, you know, I want to have that good steak for supper tonight or something. And, okay, you had that steak. You probably enjoyed it. That was fine. I had a bologna sandwich. An hour later, we're both full. It doesn't really matter, does it? It doesn't make any difference. I think all these things in the world are just going to perish. Okay? After the commandments and doctrines of men. This is men's ideas for what we need to do. You know, they're all, everybody's caught up in this whole global warming and climate change and, and this and that, but we haven't even really established, uh, for one, how much is the level of carbon changing in the atmosphere? Or, and number two, what difference is that really going to make? Is it really going to destroy the world if it does go up? And number three, is there really anything we can do about it? 
If we make all these changes, does it really make a difference? You know, I think somebody needs to think about that. We can get rid of, you know, all petroleum products and this and that and destroy our economy. But will it do any good? Will it make any difference whatsoever? Men's ideas are just foolish. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom. Okay, so if you're very, very disciplined, if you're one of these people that you're a, a, you're a CrossFit fanatic, some of these people, they worship it. I mean, it's CrossFit and they do you know, these many exercises every day and they do this and that or they have a very stringent diet and they count everything. They do exactly this. They're very, very disciplined. Well, that has some advantages. But on the other hand, what good does it really do? Okay, if I'm very uh, absorbed in that, I, I'm careful about every single thing I eat. I'm very much into how much I exercise and work out and what my body looks like and this and that. Guess what? I'm really just encouraging the flesh. I'm just totally focused on my flesh and I'm eaten up by it. I'm not free from it. I'm caught up in it. But all you're doing is will worship. You're just saying, my will, you know, I've got this strong and I can do it as I did it my way. And humility and neglecting of the body, okay, that was some take it to extremes. They think the more you neglect the body, think about these uh, uh, Indian gurus, okay? The ultimate for a guru, there's, uh, there's a book called The Death of a Guru written uh, by this man that became a Christian, but he was the son of a great guru in India. Okay, And his father was worshipped as a god because his father spent so much time doing yoga and in trances and this and that that he became completely catatonic all the time. His mother had to change the guy's diapers. And he was worshipped as a god. It's like, And that's what he was supposed to grow up to be. It's like, boy, if that's your ambition in life, I don't think I want any part of it. Okay? I mean, that's sad that that was it. But he's this, he's this guru. You've got these various gurus. Sometimes they're on Ripley's Believe It or Not or some kind of TV shows, and they can hold their breath for a really long time. And this, and There was one guy who uh, held his breath. He could hold his breath for like eight minutes or something like that because he had controlled his will so much. Well, that takes a lot of will. I mean, I'm doing good after a minute. You know, if I go into the swimming pool a minute or so, I'm ready to come up for air, you know. But he got to where he could hold his breath. I mean, and that enabled him to do things like he could, he could dive down deeper than somebody in scuba gear because if you're just on your natural oxygen that's stored in your lungs, it compresses and decompresses as you go up and down. You don't get the bends. Yeah, except he, he turned himself into an idiot for lack of oxygen to his brain. He was able to control his will to not breathe, but he couldn't control that his brain needed oxygen. Okay? So, I'll, I mean, the guy's an, an invalid now. Okay? He's a vegetable is what you'd call him. He's not really a vegetable, but he, he destroyed his brain. So what good did that will worship do? He had strong will. I give him that. Stronger than mine. By neglecting the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So, Yes, we have to deny our flesh, our fleshly. It's not our body we have to deny. Our body needs certain care. You need sleep. You need good food. You need exercise. You need all those things. But our flesh, when the Bible's talking about our flesh, it's talking about our sinful desires. Those are the things that we need to put aside, crucified with Christ. So what good have we done just because we've focused on our fleshly body? So Paul is warning 
the Colossians, about the same things we're dealing with today. You've got worldly philosophy. You've got psychology in the church. You've got, you know, there's so much of this counseling. So if you go to sessions or, or you're supposed to, you know, you have Christian counselors that you go to. Well, you know, there is no such thing as Christian psychology. There's people that call themselves Christian psychologists, but guess what? They, they practice the same psychology that Freud and Jung and these other anti-Christian people established. It's the same stuff. Just because they put Christian on the label doesn't change anything. Uh, it's all the same mysticism God has already revealed himself in his word we don't need other mystic experiences to know God's word and those don't if you have one of those you might be careful what you eat tomorrow before you go to bed instead it doesn't trump the word of God okay and uh, legalism we're not impressing God by all our hard work and all these good deeds we do in asceticism, we're really not impressing God by how much we can uh, deny ourselves. You know, you're, you're not going to top Martin Luther back when he was an Augustinian monk. You know, he would. You know, some of those guys they they wear chains with spikes in them around their waist under their robe so that it pokes them all day long because they think that's giving them credit, helping helping to purge their sins. You know, Martin Luther drove his um, his superiors crazy because he go to confession so much. He'd come in and confess all these little sins and, and this and that. And, and then as soon as he'd, live, he'd leave, he'd, he'd think, oh good, I got everything confessed. I'm now clean and good. And then he would go back and confess the sin of pride. Okay, he just couldn't. He was driving them crazy. He was in there all the time. Okay, he couldn't get there by works and by legalism and by self-denial and self-torture and things like that. That doesn't accomplish the will of God. Obeying God. Trusting Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Remember, in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the one that can forgive our sins. He's the one that can help us to walk in His Word and His way. He's the answer. It's not all these other things that we can try to do. So the church needs to stay faithful to Jesus Christ as its head.